Broadcasting from Washington, D.C., this is Insider's Guide to Energy. Welcome to Insider's Guide to Energy. I'm your host, Chris Sass, and today with me, I'm honored to have Stuart Thompson. Stuart, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Chris, for having me. Stuart, I say this at the beginning of every show, I have a pretty good idea who you are, but our audience has no idea who I just brought in unless they're a friend of yours. Maybe it makes sense to start and say who you are and what you do. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Look, I, uh, my, my name's Stuart Thompson. I, I look after the ABB Electrification Service Division. Uh, we're a global operation. Uh, we run in 50 countries around the world with field engineers on site supporting customers. And we look after anything from commercial infrastructure all the way up through to nuclear power plants in keeping the power on and keeping that energy running for, for those customers. So I would wager that our audience knows who ABB is. If you're in energy, I think you've heard the name. It's, it's a fairly large company. Um, I guess, help me understand, you're working with companies and industry members. What kind of problems are you solving or what are you seeing? What, what is the trend for folks in the industry right now? Yeah, well, we see a, a pretty dynamic world out there, Chris, at the moment. And uh, energy pricing and energy security are probably the two biggest challenges that most of our customers are facing around the world. Um, that combined with the fact that this electric revolution is happening and power demands are growing at exponential rates. I mean, in the next 10 years, we're expecting double the demand of power and at the same time, people are looking for greener solutions and more sustainable offerings. So the cost of, uh, of energy, the insecurity around it is really making people rethink about their investments and where to put money. Sustainability is another major driver at this point in time, especially with um, regions and governments acting upon this uh, in a true financial way. And then ultimately, labor skills continue to be a challenge in our industry and in attracting the right talent and, and keeping the, the skill bases high to maintain those assets that they have. So, so they're sort of the, the, the trends at the moment and the focus areas that we're, we're looking at with customers. Well, there was a whole lot in that answer. I think there's, there's two or three directions that we can go. Um, just kind of small thing, you, you said revolution for energy. Um, as opposed to like an energy transformation or something like that. What do you mean by revolution? What does that mean? Yeah, look, I think the, the, the shift in the amount of electricity that's being used and consumed in the market is, is really, really strong. Um, with the, the constraints around security of power um, and the sustainability initiatives, you're starting to see things shift uh, almost 100% to electricity. You've got automobiles moving from, from gas-based engines to, uh, to electricity. That's putting huge demands on the network and on the systems. You've got a continued push to distributed power and distributed power generation. That's requiring other storage methods like battery energy storage in the networks. So together with the, the growth and the demand and the insourcing of power and security, we're really seeing a huge shift in the electricity markets, even down in the domestic homes. Um, 
some governments are now stipulating that gas is no longer a cooking option anymore and you need to move to electricity. All of these things, cars, um, cooking, heating, cooling, all of this is moving to electricity more than other forms of power. And at the same time, that's driving demand and, and, and prices and uh, people are being challenged for the same amount of power uh, from the same providers. So they're looking for alternate options as well. Now, with that hyper growth situation you're kind of describing, um, if you're a large corporate or a large enterprise, are you worried about continuity of service and disruption? Is that a major concern these days or is is the power company doing like it always has? I flip on the light switch and my lights come on. Yeah, I think the the, the challenge is that people are looking for the same power um, from the, the energy provider, um, but they're also looking for greener power from the energy provider to meet their sustainability goals. So people are chasing the same same electricity sources. And when they're doing that, it's driving up prices and costs. So they're looking to drive efficiency in their operations. They're looking to reduce that cost. The power is there and the power is being provided. Stability of that power is a continued risk. Availability of it is a risk. So they're looking to offset that as well as offset the incremental costs that are happening to the business. And they're using various methods, right? They're trying to get more out of their existing infrastructure so they're upgrading the technology that they have to try and drive more through what they have. But at the same time, they're looking to diversify and then look at things like battery energy storage, looking at putting their own solar installations, wind turbines, etc., into their operations, as well as looking to third parties to provide that as well as the traditional utility. So companies are much more diversified now in the way they're sourcing power and the way they're applying power than they were 18 months to two years ago. So I guess two things that I've seen, um, I mean, behind the meter kind of early efforts have been around for a little while. I don't know that in the last 18 months that's brand new. Are, are you seeing a transition from just large corporate doing, you know, maybe some solar or something behind the meter? Or is this something different that we're talking about? Yeah, they, they're continuing to do the behind the meter stuff, but they're also diversifying in their... Uh, sourcing of energy uh, from different providers. Um, they're also putting larger systems in place, with particularly with battery energy storage. We see the the growth in battery energy storage from the the energy providers as well as the large industrials um, coming more and more as a, a an option that they're taking forward. They're also moving away from um, diesel generators and moving into battery storage systems. Um, playing the electricity arbitrage as well in the market to keep their energy costs down, and in some cases providing power back into the grid uh, for other consumers as well and using those price differentials to do that. But making it happen out of their existing infrastructure is really their challenge um, because most of that core electrical infrastructure has been around for many years. Putting this extra demand and different types of loads on their network they have to upgrade the core components within their system uh, to drive, continue to drive reliability and stability as all these different sources come into play and you end up with these microgrid-based systems uh, even within the industrial players. So I, I agree from, from the vantage point of the podcast or from working in the industry that I've seen much of what you've talked about, but sitting here in North America, 
in the last quarter or so, just reading story after story based on interest rates and projects. I mean, there were some large wind farms that got shut down that were going to happen. I think Orsted was having stuff offshore here and other projects that are slowing down. Um, demand is still going to go up, right? 2035, 2030, 2050, and you know, whatever program you're on is still coming. Yeah. How are interest rates in the business environment impacting the cost of energy? Because putting these projects in, you have to finance them, right? So how, how is that affecting the market maybe near term, you know, a couple, 12, 24 months, 36 months? Yeah. So as interest rates are going up, some of these large capital expenditures are, are getting delayed. So Companies are then looking at what they can do out of their existing infrastructure to, to get more out of it or drive more reliability with what they have uh, in order to maximise their operations and, and, their, uh, and their uptime in their system. So we start to see companies looking at investing from an operational expenditure standpoint uh, instead of replacing infrastructure or putting new infrastructure in place it's how do we enhance the infrastructure that is already there? So, for example, nearly in, in switchgear and systems, nearly 50% of the infrastructure, the copper, the steel, the framework, that's good for at least another 30, 40 years of production. But in order to drive uh, the higher power needs on their site, they need to look at those electromechanical devices like the, the breakers or even the digital relays or electromechanical relays they have on site. So I can give you a real-world example. So um, about 12 months ago in, in North America, a U.S. chip manufacturer um, increased their production and increased their, their, their shop floor uh, for overall chip production and drove additional energy uh, coming into the plant. The chance was then that their arc incident levels of the legacy switchgear that they had just couldn't meet those excess demands. So the option was, do you shut the production down? Do you pull that equipment out? Or do you take the existing equipment and drive retrofit opportunities for new technology and new breakers? In this particular case, they took out the existing breakers, which were purely electromechanical. They put in new digital breakers that could not only operate a lot faster to reduce the arc energy level, but they could also start doing monitoring of power. They could start doing load shedding. Um, they could start feeding from different um, sources of power behind the meter um, and then apply that to the, to the shop floor operations and keep it running more efficiently. So two things really happened. One, they drove the efficiency of the organisation, but two, they also minimised the downtime to keep the production running and that was all done through an operational expenditure versus building and extending the plant versus adding a new electrical substation and fully upgrading the system. So I think with interest rate rises and, and delays in capital expenditure, a lot of customers are starting to look back and a lot of people in the industry are, how do I get more out of what I have and how do I apply that and how do I minimise my overall operational costs? The other area, Chris, that people are looking at is how do I reduce that, that longer-term operational cost as well? And if they run products to failure or they don't run regular maintenance programs, they can be anywhere from five to ten times more expensive than running a standard routine process on their equipment. So then they look to people like us to come in, do those site assessments, assess their critical loads, and then drive up actual productivity out of the out of the products 
drive the priority on what they're going to do around those investments going forward and for us to come in and work on those priorities to keep maximum performance in their operation and keep their electrical assets performing as needed. So I guess as you describe that, um, a couple of things were floating through my head. One is, you know, if, if I'm retrofitting in that, is the economies of scale, is it significantly less than, I mean, I, I got the downtime and the operational hit that that's true, true, easy to, to calculate. Um, are the economics a lot less to retrofit and go? Is it a straight economic thing or is it more an operational thing? Is it the economics about the same? It, it, it impacts both, Chris. So from a, from an economics perspective, when you, when you look at the equipment that's going in, the, Electromechanical devices or the switching devices, they represent a little bit over half of the cost of the equipment going into place. So if you're only upgrading that portion of the equipment, the rest or the other 50% of the equipment cost is, is still there. So you, you've got that benefit. You've got the other benefit from a sustainability perspective that you're reducing the amount of carbon that you're using when you're producing things like steel and copper and that from a from a carbon offset perspective for your site. So there's a there's an economic benefit, there's the, the carbon offset benefit, which is becoming more and more relevant for a lot of large players. And then the third area around it obviously is the operational benefit. If I'm if I'm taking out a substation and, and rewiring and configuring and putting a whole new system in, Operationally, your downtime could be weeks, whereas when we're doing retrofits, especially direct replacement retrofits, they're pre-tested in the factories, they're pre-configured, there's digital twins already running to validate the configurations, and then you're dropping the equipment straight in. So it's a matter of minutes or hours rather than weeks and days of operation. So there's those three aspects when, when considering that versus you know, complete replacement. So before I move on to the technology, because you, you've, you've sparked a, a whole technology conversation in a couple part of your answer. Um, so when people have moved from a CapEx to an OpEx model, does that mean third parties are, are becoming more prevalent to offer these services to these industries as a service as opposed to the capital investment? Or is it still remaining in the industry, the, the, the technology being owned by the company? Yeah, it, I mean, it's a, it's a mixture these days. I mean, some people are looking for the as-a-service type model. Um, we we drive anything from a software-as-a-service to a hardware-as-a-service to a, a performance uh, output from the site. Um, so all of those are, are available. Um, but it, depending on the company, some companies want to keep that on, on their side of the operations and we just come in and execute um, but others actually want us to go and lead and drive that going forward. So from a technology perspective, we we can do both. Um, in an example might be if we're doing monitoring and diagnostics, we can do that on-premise on the site for the customer, and that can be in the customer's facilities, on the customer's uh, network and, and within their uh, maintenance operations, or we can then do that for them. So we can take it to a global cloud-based computing system, uh, we can run that on a cloud base that the customer prefers, or we can run it on our cloud base, and then we can host various types of services from that for the customer. So, so both options are available, Chris. It really depends on the customer, their sensitivities, um, their concerns from a, a cyber perspective in that particular case, and how we manage that for them. 
Um, but yeah, all options are on the table and uh, it depends on the customer. And in, in your answer implied um, was technology. I, I, I hear things like AI in the background or things happening in the background, right? So if I'm doing preventative maintenance and um, I, I can't remember the, the second example you gave, but there was a couple things that triggered immediately to me thinking of technology. So is that technology curve new for most of these organizations? Are they are they used to using this kind of technology to reduce their energy costs or to get better performance? Is this new or is this something that's just, just kind of making news these days because all the hype about AI? Look, I, I think there is hype about AI, but there's real world examples that we're using today. And I would say, Chris, from things like the COVID pandemic, whilst from a a global perspective, there was a lot of challenges in COVID. It actually helped us drive a lot of innovation. So, so let me give you a couple of examples. Um, when it comes to AI, um, we can, we can now start to do a lot of cloud-based computing algorithms on assets to start to predict where the asset's going to perform and how we can keep performing it. As a, as a primary manufacturer of product, uh, instead of giving you a, a guided recommendation on just uh, actual on performance in the future, we can actually monitor that performance. We can start taking in all kinds of things like how many times the product is switching, uh, the actual uh, environment in which it's operating in, um, the cleanliness of the environment, the, the duties of, of operation, we can take all that data in and instead of giving you a, a shutdown and a performance around maintenance that is on the, you know, in the instruction manual, we can actually customize that maintenance based on the application in which the, the company is using the devices. Um, so some companies like in wind turbines, for example, um, you're switching very often and very uh, infrequently and then other times frequently depending on the on the wind performance. And therefore, some turbines are needing a lot of support versus others and calling engineers out to go to these remote sites and work on equipment is extremely expensive and shutdown times are expensive for the utility as well. Um, so what we can do now is we can say, oh, well, your your equipment's performing well, uh, we can see how it's doing. We can see that you haven't got as much load on it. So as a manufacturer, we can then say, hey, we don't need to do anything for another two or three years now and extend the, uh, the recommendation to the, to the client. Um, so instead of doing just periodic shutdowns or running the product to end of life, we can actually start customizing things a lot better. So that's, that's one area. Another area which maybe isn't thought of is an area about extended reality and augmented reality. Um, during COVID, we weren't able to move engineers around the world or even move on to customers' sites because some customers had um, extreme restrictions with, with concern around the virus and the spread of the virus. So what we started working on a lot more was around using augmented reality or extended reality, where either the ABB engineer or our customer's engineer could have wearable devices, could use things like a Microsoft Halo lens, and we could start projecting not only on the device and feeding information to the site engineer, but we could provide support remotely to that site engineer. So imagine if you're a, a, a local maintenance manager of a site, uh, you've gone down to your piece of equipment, 
We now have mobile devices where uh, on your iPhone or your Android device, um, you can get basic guidance from apps on the phone around maintaining the equipment or operating it. And then if you have trouble, you can then hit a link that will link straight back to us as a provider and we can then provide extended reality support to that person. So that Chris can then guide them so we can highlight on the on the switch gear itself when they're standing in front of it where to go. We can prevent them from touching something that they shouldn't and give them a bit like parking sensors in your car. We can give them information and feedback and we could have the experts sitting, say, in, in Italy and the execution taking place in, in America. And while they're guiding the engineer in America, um, they can then highlight things, sequence of events, etc., cetera, uh, to perform that maintenance operation themselves instead of waiting days, weeks or hours for a field engineer to show up from us. So we're trying to extend what customers can do themselves, but we're also trying to give them oversight and guidance and use technology to do that. So AI is one area, extended reality is another um, we could also talk about electronics and, and monitoring within devices. Um, another area is, is we're doing upgrades and switching for someone like a steel plant. On a blast furnace, there's a huge amount of power or an aluminum plant, there's huge amounts of power consumed and breakers switch very often. Um, we've now got technology where we can extend the life of the breaker by up to five times so five breakers' lives just in one, um, just through controlling the switching of the electric uh, arc within the breaker at a medium voltage level, we can switch and, and control that switching very accurately with electronics. And so the blast furnace operator then only needs to shut down once every five years instead of once every year with this new technology and have an intervention, you know, one-fifth of what they used to do. So these are the kind of upgrades that I'm talking about. It's not just replacing like for like. Um, it could be adding that additional technology. It could be adding cloud computing capability or even on-premise computing capability, or it could be adding uh, field engineering support and capability uh, to the customer's site as well. So all kinds of cool stuff, right? Augmented reality, reality, AI. Um, I guess if I think of energy insecurity and cybersecurity, how does that play in? Because I, I could see going to the C-suite and say, look, we're going to save you a boatload of money. You don't need to fly people here and there, and they're, they're going to use you know, our support team. But how does that global platform work for maybe someone that's a little bit more worried about security? Yeah, so from the, the AI perspective, we can, uh, we've designed our systems now that whether they run locally on-premise, on-site, or from an edge computing standpoint, we go to a micro cloud structure within the company's own system or a global. Um, we, we add security ourselves from a cyber perspective, but if the C-suite are concerned for their site, we can then run it. Some of the biggest um, internet-based companies we work with, they run all their own systems on their own site. But the look and feel for it, whether it's on the cloud or locally within our systems are exactly the same. Some of the computing power and that is reduced on site, but we can help migrate the customer from a very secure on-premise system 
And then as the security levels increase or as we can enhance and improve those security bases, we can then extend it to to cloud-based computing if the customer decides to do that. But I would say, Chris, more than half of our customers just want an on-site facility. So we've scaled the offering that way to be able to be done. Um, So that's from an AI perspective. Um, When it comes to the, the support network, Um, From us supporting them and giving them guidance, we can use traditional tools um, just like uh, over the the phone and the telephony-based networks as well as the internet-based networks. Uh, With 5G on a lot of mobile devices today, uh, we can feed information back and forth securely from our site uh, to them. But a lot of this is just guidance on how to operate their equipment. We're not controlling the equipment. We're not interfacing the control of the equipment is with the site engineer or the site manager for the customer. Um, so there's no, there's no control from the outside of their equipment. Um, it's purely up to the individual at site, but we're enabling them. We're giving them the skills to do it on their site and we're providing that support remotely. And, and we can also provide that across languages as well because, um, sometimes we're doing field installations in say Italy. Um, but we're driving the technology from, from the US. Um, so this technology can also translate in, uh, in real time across languages, speaking in English and then translating to Italian for the field engineer as well. So that also helps in the understanding and, and misinterpretation chances don't happen uh, as we do that as well. But from a, a cybersecurity standpoint, it's also an important aspect. Um, we also provide site assessments for customers to understand what their cyber risks are and where we would consider their priorities on a, on a site. And if we don't do that, um, a lot of customers won't deal with you because they they want to understand what their cyber risk is at first. Yeah, I, I think we've covered a lot. I mean, um, I remember in our pre-call, you, you gave an example. Uh, you, you mentioned the, the switching in the steel industry. I think you gave an example of a water plant. Um, maybe it was in Sweden or somewhere that you've done this. Um, how did it work in, in that environment? What, what what did you guys do and, and how did you help that company out? Yeah, so um, traditionally, um, uh, when it came to the size of equipment and they look for reliability, um, a lot of companies used SF6 gas uh, switching uh, in their equipment. And the beauty of SF6 was you can make the equipment quite a bit smaller and you can switch in a, a much more compact environment. So switch rooms and, and that weren't large enough and they needed to put a lot of power into these facilities. So SF6 was a, a wonderful technology um, that is still used today in, in many countries. The problem with it is um, SF6 is an ozone-depleting gas, um, environmentally not very uh, uh, very pleasant, um, and a lot of companies and, in fact, the European Union is going to be banning the use of this uh, in the coming years. So we've gone now with new technology, um, and I mentioned before a bit about the switching of arc for arc furnaces. That same switching, we can now shrink the devices significantly from a footprint perspective. So we can now take out what used to be a very compact SF6 technology. We can remove that and use a a vacuum, an air vacuumed technology now, and then retrofit that into the SF6. 
So our role as a service provider is to guarantee the, the retrofitting and the mechanical interlocking and performance of the retrofit, but it's also to take over the environmental responsibility of the removal of the SF6 and the recycling of the gas and working with third parties to do that so that the in, industrial customer or, the in this case, the water plant, uh, didn't have to worry about that uh, environmental impact and the recycling of those assets as we've removed them from their site. Um, and then we've applied the vacuum technology to their site, which will then give them another 30 years of operation. It actually gives them higher performance and reliability of a factor of five, and we then take over the circularity of that uh, legacy equipment and we recycle the gas. So I, I guess, you know, your, your global footprint, I, I think I'm talking to you from the other side of the world today, but your, your organization spans pretty globally. The, a lot of the examples we talked about were switching. Um, you brought that in early. Do you see differences between locations? So let's say EU, North America, Asia Pack, is there any difference in what you're seeing the markets do and the demand? Actually, Chris, at the moment we're seeing uh, similar demands everywhere. We're, we're seeing the growth of that happening, but a lot of it is happening through um, region and government intervention at the moment. And we're seeing it across all three regions of the world. Um, so the European Union by far is, is, is the most advanced. Um, when it comes to sustainability measures and driving targets around sustainability. But in the last 18 months, we've seen the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, which has really put a huge amount of investment in renewables, a huge amount of investment into electrical infrastructure to support renewables and support new areas like hydrogen. So a lot of money is being spent. You're also seeing some onshoring of manufacturing in the US in particular, um, where investment through the various acts that have come into, into government um, are driving further investments in the country. Uh, in, uh, in Asia, you're seeing geopolitical movements. We're seeing a lot more investments in places like Japan, uh, especially around core chip manufacturing, uh, also within India, India's growth rates are phenomenal. Um, within Europe, a lot around energy security. Since the, the Ukraine-Russian uh, conflict, um, a lot of insourcing and a lot of uh, reassuring of uh, energy supply within Europe. Um, the other thing we've seen both in, in Europe and the US is uh, refurbishing and, and upgrading of nuclear facilities. Uh, from a, a power generation standpoint, uh, 18 months ago, we were, we were closing and helping, um, decommission, uh, and circular activities on, on nuclear sites. In the last 18 months, we've seen quite a bit of work around refurbishment, upgrade and making sure that reliability is there on that core baseline load. Uh, and we've seen that both in the, in the US as well as in, uh, in Europe. Um, but yeah, globally, we're seeing continued pushes, uh, electric vehicle um, power demands are continuing to grow and drive as we see the auto manufacturers launch more vehicles. Um, the need for charging and charging infrastructure is high. We continue to see developments around wind and renewables. 
Um, and therefore, we also see exponential growth in, in battery energy storage as well. So we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation. We started by talking about infrastructure um, and the ability to get more mileage out of what you have and, and leveraging, maybe changing the switching out and keeping the, the other parts to reduce your costs. Um, I think we switched gears then and went into the technology that's enabling for better maintenance and predictive maintenance and perhaps uh, reducing costs. Uh, you went on to little Buck Rogers talk about you know using uh, the halos and uh, Microsoft halos and doing some augmented reality and then having team go in. Um, I guess the one piece we didn't cover that you said was a problem statement in the beginning before we bring this to a close is you talked about the appropriate staffing in people. Because I think you said that was one of the problem points. And, and we haven't touched on that. I assume the augmented reality does alleviate a little bit of the, the need, but still you need to find qualified people to work. So help me understand what you meant by that problem statement and, and what you're doing to help with it or what the industry is doing. Okay. So from, from our side in attracting talent, one of the biggest things, Chris, that we see, particularly with young talent, is they want to work with organizations that are driving innovation and driving sustainability. If we have a strong, sustainable message, then young engineers are really keen to come in and, and work within the organisation. So the work that we do for customers every day and the work that we do in our own organisation driving sustainability helps us attract talent, firstly. Secondly is driving um, operations so that the level of interventions and the amount of interventions are reduced. And we talked about things like extended lives of circuit breakers and equipment. We talked about using um, analysis around the use of the asset to reduce the number of interventions. That actually requires less labour and less people to go and work on the equipment. You mentioned about the AI for us to have field experts in every country in the world that are the absolute experts on IEC or on GIS equipment or area is virtually impossible. So it used to be 100 engineers I would have in the sky at any one point in time around the world. Today, how do we have stronger clusters of engineers grouped together that are learning off each other but providing support on a, on a global basis? So... The technology is enabling us to do that more, and that's helping us from a, as, as a supplier and, a, and a, our core competences. We've also been able to do a lot more training and development work on a, on a global scale now, whereas traditionally you'd have to fly to the country of manufacturers, sit and work on the equipment and touch it and feel it. We've now distributed that around the world a lot more and bringing young engineers in and training them on equipment is, is extremely important. So trying to reduce the number of staff to work in the area, trying to make the assets smarter so it's telling you what its problem is before you get there and wasting less time when you get to the site, utilising the tools like augmented reality, all of that's helping us address the, the, the skill shortage um, but it's also reducing the amount of skills that we need in the organisation. So for us, the challenge is also the shift, right? It's no longer the 
the the the older guy in a boiler suit with it with the toolbox that's the the field service engineer we now need people that can download data understand cyber security risks etc so we've got an evolution and a change in the type of workforce that we're applying as the devices get smarter and self-diagnosing and as the quality of production and manufacture of these devices gets better over time so it, the industry as a whole as a company we have to work on increasing the skills and that and we're doing a lot more now back in the universities and in the colleges uh, to bring early uh, early engineers in to help train them and that's a fun part of our job for any of us so um, it's really good to do that but I, I would say sustainability is our biggest door opener for people it's the coolest thing that they want to work on and it's something that as service we naturally do every day by extending the life of equipment and reduce carbon footprint for customers. Well, awesome. This this has been a, a fun conversation. I think we've covered a lot of ground for our audience. Um, I want to thank you for sharing the, the journey and your story with us today. Um, thank you so much for being a guest on Insider's Guide to Energy today. Chris, it's been great. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, great to talk about these topics. For our audience, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, don't forget to subscribe, follow us, follow us on LinkedIn, follow us on the YouTube channel. Don't forget, we have exclusive content on the YouTube channel as well. And we'll see you again on Insider's Guide to Energy. Bye-bye.